Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word has everything we need in it for life and godliness. We thank you that you have given us um, not only your son, not only the good news, but you've also given us instructions as to how we are lit to live and how the church is to conduct herself, how we are to behave in the household of God. So we pray today that you would give us open and receptive ears and hearts and minds and lives. I pray that you'd cause us to tremble under the possibility of being the kind of person that would cause a problem in your church. That one day we would stand before you and have you say to us, did you not know what you were doing? So God, help us because we get so stuck in the past and in our passions that we lose our moorings. And so we need you today to create a caution within our hearts over the kind of people that we could easily become. So help us now. Help me to speak exactly what you want me to say from this great text. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure as a child you probably heard this often repeated Sunday school statement that went with some hand motions that sounded like this. Here's the church. Here's the what? Steeple. Look inside and see all the people. As a kid, that was somewhat helpful because it helped you to realize that the church was more than just a building. That when you drove by and you saw College Park Church, that you realized, well, that's the building. That's where people meet. But really what the church is, is it's the people on the inside. And when you're a kid, that that sounds kind of neat, kind of pristine, kind of innocent, sort of like a scene from Little House on the Prairie where everyone's sitting and singing and it's all getting, everyone's getting along. But then you grow into adulthood and you experience church at a new level. And for many of us, the experience is more like this. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Look inside and see all the fighting people, right? Now, that may not have been experienced for all of us, but I bet that somewhere in your lifetime, you've experienced something within the context of a church. Maybe it was a congregational meeting. You hear Bill talk about a congregational meeting. You're like, ooh, I remember those. And maybe it was a Sunday school issue or somebody else in the context of a church ministry that just got really sideways or out of joint about something. And you come to realize that the church can be a challenging place. Do you know why a church can be a challenging place? It's because of people, that's why. People just like you. (laughs) People just like me. Because the reality is church is a beautiful thing when people respond in a Christ-like way. It's also a mess, isn't it? When people get off track or get sideways or somehow get difficult. I, I remember Joe Stoll once saying this, that ministry would be a cakewalk if it wasn't for working with people. (laughs) recently i saw an article in a a newspaper about a a church just uh, this summer who had a huge problem the senior pastor let the music pastor go and gave him his last check after the sunday morning service and apparently the dollar amount wasn't what they had agreed to and so the music pastor this is true story literally pulled out a taser and tased the senior pastor after services so i started frisking eric to be sure everything's okay on sundays (laughs) 
Not a good Sunday. Not a good Sunday. How'd your service go? Ah, not so good. What happened? Well, the music pastor tased the senior pastor. That's just... So, so the church is at its best and it's at its worst because of people. And, and not just any people. It's, it's people like you and me. So Paul sends Timothy to Ephesus to deal with problems in the church. He sends him there to guard the truth that leads to life. He sends him there to take care of the internal problems within the church ministry. And the main thing that Timothy has to deal with is not just ideas or issues. It's actually people who propagate those ideas or issues. So what we're going to talk about this morning, the title is How to Split a Church. Kind of a provocative, difficult title. Or you can think of it this way, how to, how to make a mess in a church. So if you're going to make a mess in a church, how would you do that? And I'm going to share this with you. So my hope and prayer would be that you would never do this. If you're going to make a mess in the church, just do three things. Use the ministry for yourself. This comes right out of this text. Secondly, be sloppy with the scriptures. And third, neglect the gospel. Use the ministry for yourself. Be sloppy with the scriptures and neglect the gospel. And what Timothy is called to do is to deal with the intricacies of problems in this church that were stemming from people issues. And and I want you to see this material because honestly, having been around the church for nearly two decades, I've seen this happen. I've seen churches split. I've seen families fracture. I've seen kids Say, I'd never want to come back to church because of what my parents are like. I've, I've seen single adults say, forget it, I'm out of here. I've got better things to do with my time than be a part of a group of angry people. And the reality is, friends, just to speak candidly, it happens because of people and people who usually don't realize what they're capable of doing. So from this text this morning, we're going to look at how do you make a mess in a church? How do you split a church? And I hope that we'll end up taking a pretty careful look at ourselves. So here's the first thing in verses 6 and 7. It is this. Use the ministry for yourself. So you want to make the mess, make a mess in the church? You want to split a church? You want to make a big problem? Here's what you do. Just use the ministry for yourself. Now, to go back, in verse 5, Paul had just talked, and we learned this last week, about the right focus that a church should have and the right focus that the church should maintain. He says this. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So that was essentially the gospel, which involves a cleansed heart, a forgiven life, and a sincere faith. The problem was is that there were certain people in this church who were not adhering to this sound gospel. And we hear about them in verse 6. Look at it, 1 Timothy 1, 6. Paul says, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Hmm. The first thing I want you to notice in in verse 6 is that the problem is not just ideas. The problem is certain people. 
So Paul writes to Timothy and he says, certain persons. If you were to go to the end of chapter 1, you'll find that in one case Paul names two people, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who for whatever reason made shipwreck of their faith because of these controversies. So we're not just talking about theoretical people or theoretical ideas. We're talking about real people with real names who sit in these real churches who are causing real problems. Real people like, like you and me. With families, with children, with jobs, with perspectives, with attitudinal issues. One thing I want you to note here is that this, this issue of problems in the church stems from people getting sideways. And you know what's really scary is that every one of them is fully convinced that they're doing what's right. If you talk to them, they're convinced that it's God's will. And meanwhile, they are destroying God's church. We should tremble at the mess that we could make in the church. Then secondly, notice that we see what they did. They not only were certain persons, but they swerved away. They, this, this, this love as the aim, they swerved away from it. They swerved away from this pure heart. They swerved away from this good conscience. They swerved away from sincere faith. And the result was that they wandered into vain discussions. So that word swerved away means that they missed the mark or they, they deviated from the truth. It's not a wholesale rejection of the truth. It's not that they denied Christianity per se. It's not that they said, we're out of here, we're going to just go somewhere else. No, instead what it was, was a small little adjustment that resulted in a bad trajectory. That's what often happens, is that there's certain people, it's not that they're wholesalely wrong, or that they're not completely off the reservation, but they make a little fine-tuning adjustment, and then they focus on that, and then that results in a wholesale departure in terms of a mess that's created in the church. The word wandering away means that they've turned aside, they've lost their way, or in medical terminology, they're out of joint. They've entered the no-man's land of vain discussions. and This is not unlike what happens when a person is lost. Remember the last time you were lost? You have one bad decision followed by another bad decision followed by another bad decision and suddenly you're like, I don't even know where we are anymore. And that's what happens with these kinds of people. And then, to make matters worse, when the person is lost, then the real battle happens between reality and pride. Between acknowledging, I'm actually lost, you begin to convince yourself, no, 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 I'm not lost, I'm not lost, I'm telling the truth, I'm doing what I'm doing, this is God's will. And before they know it, they have no idea what a tragedy they're making in the context of the church. Seen it so many times. They have no idea of the secondary effect of their decision. Sort of like a husband and wife that I heard about in the news recently who wanted to go in a corn maze with their baby as the sun was setting. So that's not a real good idea. And they got lost and had to call 911 and have the police come and rescue them out of the corn maze. And I can imagine the conversation between probably the husband, oh, we can make it through fast, honey, we'll be fine. I'm a master at corn mazes, right? And they get in and it's getting cold and it's starting to panic. And and that's not unlike what happens in a church scenario. That One bad decision followed by another bad decision followed by another bad decision and suddenly you're in a place that you never would have thought. So there's certain people, they've swerved away, and then here's the heart of the matter in the next phrase. This is key. 
desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is, this is where we get to the motivational pay dirt. The problem here, listen, listen really carefully. The problem is not just the false teaching. This thing took off because they loved being the authority. Do you hear me? It's not just that their teaching was off. The problem wasn't just their teaching. The problem was they discovered that if they say certain things, they have groupies, followers. They they love the position of prominence. They they love the power of a crowd listening to them. They love people hanging on their words. They discover that people will do what they said and they loved it. And not for God's glory, but their own. And you know what's even more frightening? They have no idea what they're talking about. Can this happen in a church? Absolutely it can happen to a church. Could you become like this? Absolutely you could become like this. All you have to do is believe strongly and passionately about something. Be fairly articulate. Gain a few followers. Be convinced that you're special. Start to make overconfident statements. Be self-promoting and that have very, have, make statements that are, have less to do with the truth as they have to do about you. Pretty soon you'll start to believe that you've got the answers for people and for the church. You'll become angry when people don't listen to you. You'll begin to strategize about what you would do if you were in charge and you'll sow subtle seeds of discord in the context of the body of Christ. This will happen. You will do this. I've seen it. It won't be long until you're convinced that you're doing God's will and you have no idea of the damage you're doing. You will have used the ministry as an intoxicating mirror. You'll find every reason in the world why everyone else is wrong, and what you don't even realize is that you have lost your way. It's no wonder that Paul warns Timothy in chapter 1, or chapter 3 rather, about the qualifications for pastors and those who lead. He warns them about moving somebody up the ranks too quickly. He says this, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So friends, every one of us ought to tremble at the thought of becoming like this. Because listen, none of us is immune. Be careful not to use the ministry for yourself or you will make a mess in the church. Here's the second thing. You want to split a church? Then be sloppy with the Scriptures. Look at verses 8 and 10. Second thing that emerges here is the way in which these false teachers were using the Bible, specifically how they were using the Old Testament law. It seems that the false teachers were using the law to propagate some sort of um, merger between biblical truth and Greek philosophy, and they were using the law to make people believe that what they were saying was biblical. Now, Paul had seen this before in other ministry locations. For instance, in Galatia, the church had been greatly affected by those who wanted to use the Old Testament law as a litmus test of whether or not you were a true Christian, specifically the issue of circumcision. 
So they said, in order to be a real Christian, you had to be circumcised. And Paul uses very strong words for those who would fall back into this Old Testament perspective when they've come to Christ. Look at Galatians 3. Here's what he says to these Galatians. And I'm showing you this to see how serious this is. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? So Paul has strong words on this issue. Because it's a serious matter. It's a dangerous issue. The situation in, in Ephesus seems to be similar to that of Galatia, yet somewhat unique, that there were leaders in the church using this law to propagate their views, somehow integrating this philosophical idea. And so what Paul does is he explains, you shouldn't use the law this way. And so he begins by commending the law. Look at verse 8. He says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. In other words, the law can be really good if you use it in the right way. And and then he identifies very clearly who the law's audience is. And this becomes very important when you study the Bible, that you understand to whom the particular commands were written. Otherwise, you can make the Bible say anything. He says this, this is verse 9, The law is not laid down for the just, It's not laid down for righteous people, but instead it's laid down for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. In other words, why is the law written? The law is given, and the main audience is those who would break it. Its goal, the law's goal, is to highlight the boundary lines of life so that we might see how often we cross it. And then he goes on to explain a list of law-breaking sin issues, such as for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers. So he lists all of these things, and and this this list is not intended to be the end-all, be-all list, as we'll see in a moment, but the point is, is that God has given us the law in order to highlight the problem of law-breaking. I mean, this, this is common sense. Why do we have speed limit laws? Do we have speed limit laws for people who drive slowly? Do we have speed limit laws for people who drive carefully? No. We have speed limit laws because of reckless drivers. Speed limit laws are written for those who are lawbreakers. In the same way, the Old Testament law was given for lawbreakers in mind, not law keepers in mind. Now, let me take one step back, because this is complicated. When I say the law, what do I mean? Often the law is broken down into three different categories. The first category being the moral law, summarized in the Ten Commandments. Then the civil law, the law that was regulating Israelite life. And then the ceremonial law that gave instructions about how the the Israelites were to worship, sacrifices and the rest. Now that division, we've created that in modern 21st century or so in order to help us understand the law in terms of scholarly work. And that's somewhat helpful. But you need to know that in the Old Testament, no Jew viewed the law in those three categories. They were, it was all one. Every part of it was equally important. It was the identity of the Jewish people, that they were law-keeping people. It was their gift from God. It was their treaty from God at Mount Sinai. When he says, I'm your God, you're my people, here's what you will do. 
And a very common form of agreement, a suzerain vassal agreement in the ancient Near East, Israel's identity was captured in the law. Then comes Jesus in the New Testament, and he fulfills the law. So it's not that he negates the law, but rather he fills it up. In fact, what he does is he gets to the heart of the law. He actually goes for the law beneath the law. That the law was not the end-all, be-all. That there was a law underneath the law, which is why Jesus says things like this. You have heard that it is said of old that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery already in his heart. So he gets to the law underneath the law and in so doing fulfills it. So he affirms and he expands the moral law. And then in making his once-for-all sacrifice, according to Hebrews 9 and 10, he changes both the civil and the ceremonial law. So when you understand the law this way, it's not bad, but it must be used correctly. You must see the Old Testament law through the lens of the New Testament. It's a good thing, but you have to use it right. For instance, a sledgehammer is a great tool, but you ought not use it to stir chili or swat flies. It's a good tool. Just be sure you use it correctly. In the same way, the Old Testament law is a great tool, but it must be used appropriately. Now, to show you this in the New Testament, take your Bibles and let's go to Galatians 3 and then also to Romans 7. You need to understand this, and I'll explain to you in a moment why it's so important that you understand how to use the law. Galatians 3.23. Here's what Paul says about the law. He says, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now, but then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offering, or rather offspring, heirs according to the promise. Really important text about the law. Now, go over to Romans 7. From Galatians, we learn that the law's aim was to bring us to Christ, that it was our guardian, it had this purpose, and that in Christ, now we become Abraham's offspring, even though we are not technical Old Testament law keepers, we are, in that sense, law keepers through Christ. That's the point of Galatians 3. Now listen to Romans 7. I know this is technical, but stay with me, because this is really important. You need to understand this because of what I'm going to say next. Romans 7, verse 7. What does Paul say about the law? He says this, What then shall we say? Is the law sin? I mean, you might hear Paul or me say, look, the law is bad. I'm not saying it's bad. It's not sinful necessarily. Paul says, by no means. Yet if I had not... If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, notice that, through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I mean, come on, when you see food in the kitchen that says, don't eat, I mean, immediately you're like, oh, no, i got to eat that, you know? Or you, you see something that says, don't touch, 
It just, it, it, you may not even thought about touching wet paint. Don't touch. There's this thing within you that goes, come on. You know, you just, you, there's this in, innate drive to do what you're not supposed to do. That's what the commandments do. They, they surface the nature of our hearts. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death in me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Good though for what intent? That's the question. So from this then we can deduce that the law is useful for two things. This is very important. First, it restrains sin by defining it. Sin defines for all of us and for our culture, or or God defines for our culture what sin is, and in so doing, restrains it. Because God says, you shall not steal, it restrains stealing. It identifies this is wrong. The second thing the law does is it exposes our sin and points us to Jesus. It shows us how bad we are. Thus, Martin Luther called the law a mighty hammer designed to crush the self-righteousness of human beings. The law shows us over and over and over. It's our tutor, our schoolmaster, to show us how we need Jesus. It exposes our sin. It shows us how far off we truly are. It points us to the salvation offered through Jesus. So the law is good, but it's not good news. It's helpful, but helpful only when it's used for the purpose for which it was designed. Now, as you can see, understanding the law and its use is rather complicated, and you need to look at it very carefully. And the false teachers in Timothy's day were using the law and the intricate rules of the law and Greek philosophy as a new law or as a higher law. In fact, 1 Timothy 4 stresses that there were people who were making an issue over which foods they could eat or if you could be married or not. And what was happening is these teachers were looking into the law and finding these strange commands and using them to validate their teaching and their beliefs. Now, why is all of this important? Here's why, friends, because I have seen this. I have dealt with this. I've dealt with people who have used portions of the Bible to dogmatically declare that they had found God's best. It's not usually a presentation of here's right and here's wrong. No, here's what you could do and then here's how you could really live. They, they, they look in the Bible for particular commands and, and particular principles and particular ideas that could somehow make you more spiritual than others. I was thinking about all the things that I've seen in my just few years of pastoral ministry. Let me just give you a list. I've seen um, Old Testament nutrition plans. People who love nutrition and they go and they find the Noahic diet, the Daniel diet. You want to eat like Noah, eat like Daniel? Great. Just don't make it a spiritual issue. That's the problem. When we take that and we make it a spiritual issue, now you can find God's best. Or um, clothing or fabric recommendations. I've even had people tell me what particular color like God likes the best. You laugh. I've had people tell me that. I've seen the Old Testament law used for, regarding things like birth control water purification, dating and courtship methodologies, and even prohibitions on interracial dating. The problem was that people used specific Bible verses to justify their views. A few examples. I I once heard a fairly well-known Bible conference speaker teach that you shouldn't drink milk when you eat steak because Exodus 23.19 says you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. 
A, a church in the community which I serve named itself Landmark Baptist, citing Proverbs 22:28, which says, Remove not the ancient landmarks which thy fathers have set. And they use this as a justification for not moving ancient landmarks like hymns in the King James Version. Now, I have no problem with the King James Version or hymns. I love them both. But I do have a problem when one uses a verse that's talking about property lines to justify, not, to justify using a thing that's a personal preference like hymns and Bible translations. I could go on and on and on of the hundreds of ways I've seen this take place in the course of my pastoral ministry. These examples would be laughable except for the fact that the sloppy use of the Scriptures is dangerous. I've seen churches split. I've seen people act very sinfully. I've seen children reject Christianity wholesale because of ridiculous discussions about things that don't produce genuine righteousness. I've seen well-meaning men and women become intoxicated when they learn that people will listen to them if they cite chapter and verse on everything. So they're constantly citing Bible verses. And they're hunting and pecking through Proverbs and the Old Testament law to find verses that match up what they are doing. So they search, they quote Bible, they quote the Bible, and at first they do it because it's authoritative. Later they do it because it makes them authoritative. The sloppy use of the Bible can make a mess of the church. So how you study the Bible, and listen, how you listen to those who teach you the Bible is really, really important. How you listen, even on Sunday, is really, really important. So let me just give you some pastoral applications of this. When you listen, when you study the Bible, this is just a quick thing on hermeneutics, how to study the Bible. Here's a few things. First, when you listen and when you read those who teach the Bible, trust but verify. Don't become cynical. Don't become negative. But friends, don't be naive. Don't just take something that I say is true. as true just because I say it. Trust but verify. Realize, secondly, that the Scriptures are revealed progressively from the Old to the New, and it builds over time. So the Old Testament has to be viewed through a lens of the New Testament. Realize that God's revelation in Genesis is different than His revelation in the book of Revelation, and you need to view the landscape of biblical history through a lens of the New Testament ethic. That progressiveness is really important. doesn't mean that the Old Testament is invalid and isn't helpful, but you have to view it through the right lens. Think sledgehammer, chili, and fly swatter. It's a great tool. You have to use it the right way. Third, every passage only has one meaning or one intent. It may have many applications, but it only has one meaning. And that meaning is based upon what it says, not what it says to you. There can be a difference between what you think it says and what it actually says. And just because you feel um, like God's speaking to you from His Word, if God's Word is speaking to you and that's not what it says, God wasn't speaking to you. You were speaking to you. And you can use the Bible to speak to yourself, but God isn't speaking to you. So we have to get to the intent and the point of the passage. Fourth, read the passage and read its context for its meaning. Look around the text. See what's going on. I think it was D.A. Carson that said a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Right? Did you get that? Ask your friend. Um, then, compare Scripture to Scripture. You have to know the whole counsel of God. You have to see how the Old Testament and the New mesh together. If you just pull one verse out, out of one book of the Bible and you don't compare it with the rest of the Scripture, you, you won't get a sense of the whole counsel of God. Remember, the whole Bible is one big message. And it all fits. But if you take James and Romans, you separate them out. Or you take 
Leviticus or Nehemiah, if you're not careful, you can develop all sorts of strange and crazy ideas. So you want to make a mess in the church? Just make the ministry about you. Secondly, use the scriptures in a sloppy manner. Here's the third thing, and that is this, neglect the gospel. So the final pastoral admonition I'd have to you, not only about what this text says, but also about how to listen to the Bible, is be sure that you listen for a gospel focus. It's remarkable here that Paul returns to this point of the gospel. And yet at the same time, it shouldn't be remarkable at all because the gospel is the center of Christianity. It's the means of spiritual growth. This gospel, the good news that Jesus came and died for sinners, is not just how you are born again. The gospel is the basis of Christian living and church life. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the gospel is just how you get saved or the gospel is how your sins are forgiven. That is the starting point of an entire life of gospel focus. Every Sunday we have to celebrate and remind ourselves of the value of the gospel. The gospel is not just the message that people outside of the church need to hear. It is the message that people inside the church need to live. So listen for a gospel focus. Look at verse 10. After this list of all these sins, he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So Paul uses this catchphrase, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, just in case you would try and use his list as a legalistic list of what's right and wrong. So he throws all these things in and then says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. He knows people. He knows that we are prone to our lists. And he's concerned about anything, any action that doesn't fit with a sound, healthy, God-glorifying, righteousness-producing teaching. The word sound refers to that which is healthy and that which is helpful. So the gospel makes a church healthy and helpful. It makes a family healthy and, 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 and hopeful. It, it makes a single person. It makes you healthy and helpful. The gospel is the essence of what we need to receive and live out. Notice the fact, secondly, that he says this sound teaching is directly related to its connection to the gospel. He says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. What is this gospel? The gospel is God's plan of reconciliation of mankind to himself. This this gospel message is the golden thread we've woven all the way through the Old and the New Testament. The gospel is the irreducible minimum of the scriptures. And it is the basis not only of positional righteousness, but it's the basis of practical righteousness. Which is why Paul says this in Galatians chapter 2. He says, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's his gospel. That's the truth. And then he says this. It's not just propositional. One time I received Jesus. I know I'm in heaven teaching. But rather this gospel is how I live all the time. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, I understand this gospel, I live this gospel, I, I, I breathe this gospel, I've received Jesus, and now the life that I live, I live in light of who Jesus is and what he has done. This completely alters not only one's orientation about eternity, but it alters one's orientation about what is truly important. The gospel is not just about where you go when you die. The gospel is about where you go now. It's about where, what you do now. 
It's about what you say now. It's about how you live now. That's why he says, in accordance with the gospel. And then he says, of the glory, of the blessed God. If you have a first edition ESV, it says the glorious gospel. Then the second edition was changed to read the gospel of the glory, referencing the point that this gospel has intended purposes of communicating both the glory of God and also that it is this stewardship he's been entrusted with it. And so when the gospel gets off or when it's neglected, there is a wrong focus on God. It's no longer seen just as a gift from God. It's no longer seen as a glory of God, that which produces the glory of God. So what happens is that a church, a small group, a Bible study, uh, an ABF class, or you with your friend at a restaurant, you can get really off track when you neglect the gospel. We neglect it at great cost. So, finally, how does the gospel protect the church? Let me just help you to understand why the gospel is so critical and why it really makes a difference and why all of this, this whole thing of how you split a church, how to make a mess in a church, can frankly be solved if we just rehearse the gospel over and over and over and over. The gospel is the ultimate solution. And when a people in a church become gospel-focused people, it solves so many issues. How so? How so? Let me show you. First, the gospel humbles us. The gospel message is simple. It's this, that you cannot save yourself. You're a mess. You need help. It tells you that you are a sinner and that you cannot solve your own heart problems. So the Bible, right in the very beginning in terms of its message about who you are and what you need, gets in your face and says, you are a sinner and you need help. And the result is that boasting, according to Romans 3, is excluded. Who in the world would boast when everything you've received in life has been given to you from God? You've got nothing that you haven't received as a gift. So that changes how you see everything in life. So when you rehearse the gospel, you're a wretched, awful sinner. Tell that to your heart over and over and over, but then don't leave yourself there. Bring yourself to the gospel and remember that it was Jesus who paid for your sins. So your confession in life is that I have nothing at all apart from Jesus, but in him I have everything. So it doesn't mean that you're down or depressed or you're you're just always thinking about how bad that you are. It means that you are gloriously, uh, unbelievably in love with Jesus, but you are humble because you know what you really deserve. Second, the gospel centers us. See, in life, there's lots of things that you could talk about, and the challenge is getting them in the right order of importance. The gospel helps us to be reminded about what is most basic and what is the most enduring message of the church. It it helps to keep us on target. So in the midst of all of the great things that the church is doing, it is the centrality of the gospel that keeps us from running off into worthless discussions. Because if you neglect the gospel, you neglect everything. So all of these things that we do, from children's ministry programs to small group Bible studies to the ABF classes to counseling to, to justice-related issues in our city to foreign evangelism, all these things relate because of one particular irreducible minimum message. It is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. It centers us. And anything that doesn't fit with that mission may be a good thing, but it's not a church thing. So somebody else can do it. And do a really good job. But that's not what the church is called to do. The church is called to guard the truth that leads to life. What is the truth? The truth is is that Jesus came to die for sinners. Among whom I am foremost. Third, it focuses us. It focuses us. Meaning, knowing who you are in Christ defines your identity and your purpose. 
So if, if you're under the age of 18, listen really carefully to me. You're junior higher, senior higher, listen, listen to me. Right now in your life, you're trying to figure out who you are, what your identity is. It's why your hairstyle changes, your clothing changes. It's why in, when you look in the mirror in the morning, you think, wow, what is so-and-so going to think of this? And just so you know, your parents think the same thing. But anyways, um, <laughs> as you grow up trying to figure out what your identity is, listen to me. You will always be insecure unless you understand this central thing that Jesus died for your sins and who you are in Christ. You want to know real identity? You want to know real self-esteem? Real self-esteem doesn't come from you doing great things. It comes from you knowing a great Savior. Your esteem doesn't come from doing great and mighty things. It comes from knowing a Savior who is worthy of all that He is for you on the cross. And the reason you're parents and adults are trying to clap while I'm talking over them is because they've found this. They're insecure too. They, the objects just change. And real identity, real focus, real security doesn't come from a relationship, from marriage, from a job, from a career, or from just being all by yourself. Real security comes from knowing who you are in Christ because of the gospel. And so that when a false teacher comes along, you can have courage to go, I, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't believe this, and I don't care what you think of me. I'm, I'm, I'm going to either oppose this or I'm leaving or I'm going to do something, but I'm, I'm free. Fourth, the gospel finally, friends, motivates us. All that God has done for us in Christ now is the motivation for righteous living. It becomes the motiva- motivation for generous giving. It becomes the motivation for even dangerous missions. It becomes the motivation for contagious evangelism. Paul said it this way, in light of the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices. So you could spend all of your life trying to figure out all the various false teachings that are out there in the world. You could spend all your life trying to figure out how to make yourself different, how to do all these things. At the end of the day, you know what? What it really comes down to is knowing and understanding the beauty of the gospel. And the only guarantee that you're not going to make a mess in the church, the only guarantee is that you keep the gospel as the central reality focus in your heart and life, and you create this central focus of the gospel for everyone with whom you come in contact. You see, it's not just that ideas are a problem, it's that people create problems. It's not just the Bible that's the issue, it's the sloppy use of the Bible. And it's not just the fact of knowing the gospel, but it's neglecting the gospel that creates an issue. Church can be a glorious, beautiful thing when it looks like this. Here's the church... Here's the steeple. Look inside and see a gospel-loving people. When that happens, oh man, church is a beautiful thing. So Father, help us to be gospel-loving people who live out the reality of our calling and who know who Jesus is and who have safety and identity in our relationship with Him. We, we, we pray that, um, Father, that You would help us to live in such a way uh, here at College Park Church that the Gospel just comes alive. For loved ones in this room who've had really bad church experience, I pray that this body of believers could be a redemptive place. For people whose um, hearts have begun to go down a path of making the ministry about them, I I pray that today you just give them a warning and caution them. And for those of us in leadership, help us to humbly walk in a way that um, is open to rebuke, open to instruction, 
wants to make much of you so that at the end of the day, this time of ministry that we're involved in will not be about us, but instead be really about Jesus. That's what we want. We want our mission to not just be a statement to be lived out, that we want to ignite a passion to follow Jesus. So help us. And friends, while we're just in a quiet moment of prayer, before we close afterwards, there's going to be some folks up here to pray with you if you need that. And I'd encourage you to do that today if you're here with some issue, some burden. But can I just ask you while we're just in this last few moments to take a careful moment of inventory. If you're a dad, could you just think about how you're using your position of authority? If you're a mom, how are you using your position of authority? If you're a kid, a student, college student, how's your identity? If you're a single adult, what does it mean for you to really be gospel focused? And as we just conclude, would you just think with me about where you're at in terms of the heart of the gospel being lived out? What does it mean to live as Christ? So Father, help us to not just leave, but to really listen to what it is that you want to say to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, these folks are here to pray for you if you need something going on in your life. They're here, all right? College Park, I love you. Thanks for coming today. God bless you.